0: Cat, what is this?
1: It's Down on the Corner by Credence Clearwater Revival.
0: Okay, but it sounds a little different than that. <laughs> well, the sound you're hearing is water dripping in a cave
1: onto a glass plate where scientists are letting calcite grow. They're monitoring the drip rate while also singing.
0: Because what else are you going to do in a cave but monitor water while singing? You're going to have to tell me a little bit more than that.
1: Well, we've been exploring how nature tells its story.
0: Right. In last week's episode, we talked about how a fish's eyeballs can tell us about their life history, where it's been, and what it's eaten.
1: Yeah. And apparently, ancient water from caves can tell us a lot, too. I learned from UC Davis doctoral student Barbara Wortham that caves are like a giant sponge that can soak up rain from 20,000 years ago and store it in rock.
0: So it's like ancient water. Exactly.
1: The water actually fossilizes. They call it fossilized drip water.
0: Caves actually collect all
2: of those raindrops that fall on top of them. And they record all of that history that is um, coming with the raindrop through time. And so that is what I'm actively trying to uncover is all of that history that comes with the water and, and the isotopes in the water.
1: That history can tell us about not only Earth's past climate, but maybe even its future one. In this episode of Unfold, it's Nature Tells Its Story, Part 2, Caves and Really Old Water.
0: Coming to you from UC Davis, this is Unfold, a podcast that breaks down complicated problems and unfolds curiosity-driven research. I'm Amy Quinton
1: and I'm Kat Curlin. Have you ever been inside a cave, Amy?
0: I have, but I'm totally claustrophobic, so I didn't stay very long. Well, that's
1: a shame. There are hundreds of caves here in California. We've got lava caves, chimney caves, big caverns that look like underground cathedrals. There's some really cool ones at Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park.
2: My favorite cave in California is Little Burn Cave, which is in the southerns here Nevada. It's the biggest mapped cave in California. and it is made out of marble, which is striped rocks. And so you walk through it and there's these beautiful uh, formations that have been made by you know millions of years of water running over them. They're smooth and they undulate and they look like water themselves and they're all striped so they just have this beautiful effect in the cave.
0: That is really so cool. That sounds so amazing. Like, when do we get to go?
1: I know. It sounds fabulous. Barbara mostly studies caves in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And those caves are full of stalagmites and stalactites.
0: Those are the pointy things that look like rock icicles that hang from the top of the cave or shoot up from the bottom. I forget which is which.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I get it confused, too. Stalagmites grow up and stalactites hang down, like icicles. A way to remember it is the one with a C, stalactite, is for ceiling, and stalagmite, with a G, is for ground.
0: Of course, you have to know how to spell it.
1: (laughs) I suppose that's true.
0: But thanks for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. That water is rich in the mineral calcite. So when water drips off the stalactite, it hardens and slowly builds a stalagmite on the floor. Each drop trapped in that rock is like a little time capsule. It's kind of like when scientists take samples of sediment cores from the ocean floor or cores from ice in the Arctic. Well, Barbara takes samples from
0: stalagmites. So stalagmites are a little like tree rings. Like you can figure out how old they are because their layers grow year by year. Kind of like we did with the fish eyeballs in last week's episode.
1: Oh, that's so funny. You link that. So that's one reason climate scientists started looking at caves in the first place but now it goes way beyond growth rings. Scientists like Barbara can analyze the chemical signatures of stalagmites to really get climate information from them. But first, she has to get to the caves, which is not always easy. Barbara sent us some video of this. It shows Barbara tromping through the Sierra Nevada forest in winter with her snowshoes and trekking poles in order to get to these remote caves. She has to carefully
0: cross icy streams. in snowshoes? That sounds really dangerous.
1: Well, she says once she arrives at a cave, it's pure joy and discovery.
2: Caves are these really crazy things. They're so variable and unique and independent. You could walk into a cave and it's like you're walking into a ballroom. They're huge, they echo. You have so much space around you that the light on your head that you need to use in order to see doesn't even reach the wall. Like, it it runs out. The light source runs out before you get to the wall.
0: That's cool, but also fairly scary.
2: Why?
1: Are you afraid of the dark? No. Pay attention. But you can
0: also be in caves where you're
2: crawling through a tiny tube that's as wide as your shoulders, and you're pushing your bag in front of you or you're, you've got it tied to your foot so that you can pull it behind you with the samples that you're trying to take. They're a very variable environment to work in, which is cool. And you do need to understand all of that difference in, in uh, environment in order to do what I do.
0: So what exactly does she do in there?
1: Well, she's taking a lot of measurements like temperature
2: and how the air moves. Some of these caves breathe, literally daily, they recirculate all of their air um, through a process that we call cave ventilation. So how often does that happen? Is that going to impact all of these records that we tried to create from the cave deposits? And she's
1: collecting drip water. She's looking for that fossilized water to squeeze out of those stalagmites.
0: Excuse me? (laughs) Did you say squeeze? (laughs) Indeed I did. This
1: part kind of astounds me. Apparently, when water moves through a cave, it brings with it calcium carbonate. When those calcium carbonate crystals grow together, they can trap rainwater between
2: the crystals. And so you can imagine that if you have a bunch of Legos and you're putting your Legos together, you can't exactly push them all the way together. There's a tiny, minuscule amount of space between them. And in that minuscule amount of space, tiny amounts of that rainwater gets trapped. And so we are trying to get that water out between the Legos of calcium carbonate.
0: Okay, but wait, rocks aren't exactly sponges. Which is why I asked her how she
2: does this. And the way we do that is quite fun um, for me because I get to be in a lab where I basically spin something that squeezes the rock, it literally squeezes the rock to super high pressures And I spin it and spin it and spin it until no more water gets squeezed out of the rock and measure all of the water that has come out of it.
1: And that's important because really, this is all about water and not just ancient water. You may have noticed that things are exceptionally dry in California.
0: Yeah, we're in the second drought I've been in since I moved here in 2012.
1: Some wonder if that drought ever really even ended or if we're in some mega drought. But by looking at the past, Barbara's hoping that this ancient water secrets will help us manage our water resources going forward, especially with a changing climate.
2: 20,000-year-old water is really interesting because CO2 has changed quite a bit. And so what I'm trying to do is really understand how this variability in CO2, which causes variability in temperature, how does that impact our water resources and precipitation in the Sierra Nevada? And you can get all of that from twenty thousand year old water because it was falling in a different CO two and temperature landscape than what we have now, and so th- that's really what I'm trying to get at is this is this climate change signal, but and and how it impacts our water resources in the Sierras.
1: Notice she says our water resources. She's talking super hyper local water information, like so. Global climate models are really important. But they're not very granular. What Barbara's collecting through this water is climate information about exactly where we live. We can compare the two to get a bigger, more precise picture of what the climate was like here under similar CO2 conditions in the past.
0: So if they collected drip water in a cave in Kentucky or Texas, for example, then they could also get that local climate information. That's right. People have been studying caves for a long time, but this research is fairly new, right? Right.
1: Barbara calls fossilized drip water the new frontier. She's one of the first to try it in the U.S. When she's done, she and her colleagues will have created the first record of fossilized drip water that exists in the state, possibly even in North America.
3: It is exciting that you would even preserve these fluids in something this old.
1: That's Isabel Montañez, a UC Davis professor in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and Barbara's
3: advisor. It's kind of like DNA in, you know, being found in stuff that's millions of years old. We have samples that we could be exploring, this will happen in the future, uh, that go back to 70,000 years. Isabel's been working for years on key questions that she says caves can help answer. No one had been asking the question as to, do we have records of past rainfall and past seasonality? Uh, When did we have droughts? And I knew that um, the caves scattered throughout the foothills of the Sierra, Nevada, and as well as caves elsewhere, there are some along the coast, I knew that these were unexplored um, and that they had the potential to be an archive or what I like to call crystallized climate.
0: Crystallized climate, cat. (laughs) I like that.
1: Alliteration. It's a beautiful thing. That phrase also conveys a sense of wonder and curiosity, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of scientists, including Isabel, talk about that being at the root of their work.
3: Yeah, you know, The reason I do what I do, I mean, I think the reason I wanted to be who this sort of career back when I was in the eighth grade uh, is comes down to the forensic science. I mean, it's always about being a detective uh, in the science, you know, in the scientific realm. And so every new approach we we can try it to develop if it's successful is you know th- just the the coolest thing it is all about trying to find the the new and the unexplored
0: so what have they found that's new
3: they took those ancient fluids and looked at their noble
1: gas concentrations which no one had done before apparently noble gases are hypersensitive to temperature changes They found that the central Sierra Nevada was exactly 5 degrees Celsius colder 18,000 years ago than it is today.
3: That means that we are looking at about 5 degrees of temperature between when ice sheets were spanned out into Montana and Wyoming and Oregon and Washington versus today. And I think that's really insightful, right? Um, In that if 5 degrees from ice sheets down in in Oregon and covering Montana and in Idaho, and we're looking at potentially four degrees total change in our future, I mean, it's really eye-opening, right?
0: That is eye-opening and a bit scary. So what does this mean for California? Did she say anything about that?
1: She did. Isabel told me that for us in the Southwest, it's looking like periods of drought, fluctuating with these rain dumps called atmospheric rivers. But she has some caveats because our planet has never actually experienced what we're doing
3: to it now. These switches in the past from uh, normal rainfall patterns to uh, drought conditions no doubt happened, uh, turned over in in decades or so uh, and then may have lasted for centuries. But those changes are still far longer term and happen much more slowly than what we know we are doing now and what we are seeing as change now. So Whatever we discover um, may be analogous to what we might predict in the future, but we should anticipate they could be faster in terms of change and perhaps even amplified.
1: So consider that a warning. The Earth's sensitivity to CO2 may be higher than we realized, and we may be underestimating the changes ahead.
0: Geez, cat, way to end this on a happy note. <laughs> right?
1: I'm sorry, perhaps you'd prefer I stick to just talking about caves?
0: No, this is important. So what is the next step for these researchers?
1: Their next step is analyzing this water to learn about something very top of mind for we Westerners, wildfire.
3: We've done some exploratory work. We know that they uh, contain organic molecules that came from the soil and they washed down with the rain as it went through the soil. And what are some uh, preliminary work we've done says that those molecules can actually tell us about past wildfires. So that's our next area. We're gonna try to develop a couple of different approaches using those molecules. So yeah, there's probably a whole treasure trove in, those, in, in that water uh, that we haven't yet explored.
0: <laughs> Ancient Fire Cat, nature's story continues to unfold.
1: Oh, you said it. And you can hear more Unfold episodes at ucdavis.edu slash
0: Unfold. Thanks for listening. Unfold is a production of UC Davis. It's produced by Cody Trappel. Original music for Unfold comes from Damian Barrett and Curtis Jerome Haynes. Hey, if you like this podcast, check out UC Davis's other podcast, The Backdrop. It's a monthly interview program featuring conversations with UC Davis scholars and researchers working in the social sciences, humanities, arts, and culture. Hosted by public radio veteran Sotirius Johnson, the conversations feature new work and expertise on a trending topic in the news. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.